1980, director Martin Scorsese and star Robert De Niro gave the world a mopey drama about a boxer who is in <laughs> over his head everywhere but the ring. In 2022, we try the second of two new expressions from America's favorite distillery. The film is Raging Bull. The whiskey is Jack Daniels bonded. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey, Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, we keep the ball rolling with our mini-series of Martin Scorsese films with his 1980 classic, Raging Bull. Brad, this was a movie that I will just say up front, I kind of gave you a fair warning about, and this has happened a couple times already this season, where you haven't seen a movie yet, and I've seen it before, and I've said, hey man, I expect this to be one of those episodes where Bob comes in with a hot take. We've only had a few where it's like stone cold classics that we've both come in and been like, yeah, I don't like this movie that much. It happened with 2001. I mean, it, it very clearly happened with you with E.T. Mm. We uh, we ruined Back to the Future for many people and <laughs> ra both Raging Bull and Taxi Driver were two movies that I could just never really crack. Like I, they just seemed impenetrable to me. And we rewatched Taxi Driver and I loved it. And I said, all right, man, I don't expect to catch lightning in a bottle twice. I think I'm going to still hate this movie. And I got to be honest, man, I really liked this movie again. <laughs> so did you, you know, I'm not coming in with the hottest of takes. I, I, I will say, like, I'm not crazy about this movie. And I don't think that it necessarily deserves quite the reputation that it uh, enjoys. But I think it's a darn good movie. Yeah, coming into this, I was in a similar place as Taxi Driver. I was like, man, everything that you told me about Taxi Driver led me to believe that I would not like that film. And leading into Raging Bull, I knew it was about Robert De Niro as a boxer and that he gained a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. Those are like the three things I knew about the movie. Yep. And so that didn't necessarily lead me to a place where I was not pumped about watching it. But I wasn't pumped about watching it. I, I don't know. Your your warning kind of, you know, it, it backed me off a little bit. <laughs> uh, and then I watched it and I have thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brad, I'm excited to talk about those thoughts. And I didn't mean to, like, jump in with evaluative comments on the movie so soon in our podcast, because I think a lot of people might know where we're going already. You're just uh, coming out swinging <laughs> just like Jake LaMotta. I, I need to learn how to bury the lead a little bit here. <laughs> so why don't we do this, Brad? Let's let's do a very early Brad Explains. And as we transition into Brad Explains, which is America's favorite segment, we want to remind you that whether it's your first time listening or you've been listening to Film and Whiskey for a long time, you can always join us on our Patreon community at patreon.com slash film whiskey. You can support the podcast at three different levels of support three, five, and seven dollars a month. Uh, we have tons of bonus perks at each tier, but all three tiers get you access to a special Discord server that we are on every single day talking with members of the film and whiskey community. So please consider making a donation or a long-term subscription to us at patreon.com slash film whiskey. All right, it's time for Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the film that he has just seen, often for the first time. And Brad, I know this was your first time seeing Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. Sure was. So before we even give any background about the movie, I feel like we should just go ahead and get Brad's uh, take, not, not, not your take on the movie, Brad's summary of the film out of the way, because a lot of times I feel like your true feelings <laughs> kind of creep into Brad Explains a little bit. And I'm excited to hear how you might uh, spice things up with some hot takes. So, Brad, you have 60 seconds on the clock. Can you break down the plot of Raging Bull? Raging Bull is a film about a boxer named Jake LaMotta who has just the wildest of childhood traumas that we don't see. And the entire movie is about him being insecure and unable to come to terms 
with his relationships uh, as soon as I think that the core of it, if I want to play uh, what, what does um, Tommy Wiseau call it? Junior psychologist. <laughs> if I was to play a junior psychologist, I would say that for some reason, Jack, Jake LaMotta hates himself and he thinks that everything he touches is destroyed. And that is the truth throughout the movie. He destroys everyone in the ring that he fights and he destroys everyone in the ring that is a part of his out of the ring that is a part of his life. Mm-hmm. The end. Yeah. I mean, it's a very tragic movie. Like it, it's <laughs> bro. I was like th- the whole movie. I'm like, man, this is just not working for me. And I was like, there's no way Scorsese. By the time we got like an hour and a half in, I was like, there's no way Scorsese can pull this off. Like there's only like 30 minutes left. And then they put him in the isolation chamber. Mm. And when he like representatively, when he is literally and figuratively all alone, no one is left in his corner, if you will. Uh, His true feelings come out. And he's weeping as he beats the wall, saying like that. He's like, I hate you. I hate you. Talking about himself. And at that moment, I was like, oh, this is just is like I almost started crying. Yeah. And he got me. He and got me. Like, just like, you son of a bitch. Like, you pulled it off. Crazy. <laughs> you, you were the Jeff Goldblum. You, you yep. crazy son of a bitch. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Brad, there's a lot of directions we can take this episode. And. Any angle that we start talking about this movie from, there's a lot of juicy tidbits to talk about. Like, if you want to dive in on Scorsese, there's a lot of backstory we can go into because this comes out at a very tumultuous time in Scorsese's life. All sorts of uh, cocaine use. Lots of cocaine. Uh, We could talk about De Niro and and what this role and this performance means in the history of cinema. There's just so much kind of rich backstory to this movie that is in a lot of ways almost more important than the movie itself. And so I'm going to leave it up to you. Where do you want to start with this episode? Honestly, at this point, I literally knew almost nothing about Raging Bull. I like if I represent the everyman on this podcast then like i guess i would be curious to hear some of the history behind the mm. the movie some of the impact that it had on cinema and i think we can t- as we do that we will talk about the main performance there's probably three performances that matter between pesci moriarty and de niro mm-hmm. uh but i think we can talk about those as we talk about the impact because yeah. if i'm being frank as i did a little bit of research for two facts and a falsehood it seems like people treat this movie in like Citizen Kane territory. Yeah, for sure. And so I was flabbergasted to read that because I would have uh, like just being a person who watches movies casually, I had I'd never really heard of it before. Mm-hmm. So hit so hit me with it. What 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 makes this movie so daggone important, Robert? Well, well, Brad, if there's anything that I've learned from studying as many screenplays as we have, like we need a good framing device. So maybe the best way to approach this is like let's lay out on the table what this movie's legacy is and how it's regarded. And then I think we can spend some time kind of dissecting and and parsing out if it deserves that reputation. So This movie comes out in 1980. The 80s, as we know, are a decade of movies that are just kind of filled with big action, violent, just popcorn movies that don't have a lot of depth. If I'm if I can characterize a whole decade like that. And so by the end of the decade, many, many, many critics point back to Raging Bull as kind of the only film that still represented what they loved about cinema from the 70s. And so even by the end of the 1980s, Raging Bull had really achieved classic status. And it grew and grew and grew in stature, especially among directors. Directors love this movie. And by the time you get to the American Film Institute's top 100 list, the first one comes out in 1998. Raging Bull, I think, cracks the top 25 in that list. And then they they redo it in 2007 for a 10th anniversary. And Raging Bull is named the number four movie of all time. Like it's ahead of Lawrence of Arabia. It is right behind Casablanca, The Godfather and Citizen Kane. And hmm. I remember thinking like, well, that's that's a big move. <laughs> that really moved up quite a ways. <laughs> that's a bold strategy, Cotton. And part of it is because when you look at like the voting body, of 
the AFI at that point, they were really going all in on appreciating 1970s cinema, what we call the new Hollywood. And we've we've talked about that a little bit with Scorsese and Coppola and De Palma and Spielberg and Lucas to some extent. But, you know, celebrating this kind of independent spirit that had risen up in Hollywood. And this was like the pinnacle of that to them. And so you have a movie that is just really widely regarded by cinema people. And yet, like, I'm on Twitter way more than I should be, Brad, and the people that I follow on Twitter are almost all film critics now. And Raging Bull doesn't really seem to move the needle the way that it did even 15 years ago when that list was made. Like, I think if we redid that list, Raging Bull would still be very highly regarded, probably still in the top 25. But I would I'd be shocked if Taxi Driver didn't move up farther, if Goodfellas didn't move up farther. It just seems like a movie that people agreed was incredible. And then we never talked about it again once it got kind of canonized as the number four film. Yeah, it's amazing how there's certain like arguments and debates that will just permeate human history. And any debates around like greatest of all time status or even like top five seem to just percolate forever in the souls of anyone who's passionate about anything. (laughs) And so it's amazing to me that we haven't had another AFI top hundred movie list since 2007. Yeah. Like that seems it seems like a really long time, Bob. I completely agree. I think that part of the reason this movie is so high up, though. Is that when you start talking about what's the greatest movie in American history, you start kind of getting into the territory of what movie tells, quote unquote, like the great American story. And in that regard, I understand why Citizen Kane is always number one. I understand why Raging Bull is top five, because this is a very Citizen Kane type story. It's just about like a big brutish guy from the Bronx instead of about a newspaper magnet. And it it really does embody that sort of tragedy that we really love reading in our American literature. So, like, you know, from that point of view, I understand it. But, Brad, I just even as a guy who likes this movie now, I'm truly shocked that it's considered top five ever. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it definitely has. It's almost like the anti-American dream story because it's the story of a man who truly like pulls himself up by his own bootstraps, but to his own detriment. Mm-hmm. Like if anything, like I, I don't think I'm being controversial by saying that modern Americans on the whole don't really like America a ton. Uh, this just feels like an early version of that critiquing like one of the big American mythological stories that we told for a very long time as a country about, you know, bringing yourself up out of nothing, the rags to riches. Like mm. he does that, but it destroys him in the process. Yeah. I mean, there's so many parallels that we can draw from this movie to other movies. Citizen Kane being one of them. I think the Godfather is another one where it's, it's this really tragic sort of arc. And yet Brad, it sounds like raging bull didn't quite do it for you in the way that a Godfather or a citizen Kane did. So Let's kind of dive in a little bit on what worked for you about the movie. What didn't work for you about the movie? Uh, Joe Pesci works for me. Holy crap. Is he amazing in this movie? I don't know who he was up against for best supporting actor, but oh my gosh, did he deserve it? Uh, And while we're at it, uh, Kathy Moriarty probably deserved it for best supporting actress as well. Yep. Like the three of them, De Niro, Moriarty and Pesci, were fantastic in this film. The crazy thing about Pesci's character is I have a hard time explaining his performance because De Niro is is so I don't want to say over the top, but he takes up so much bandwidth <laughs> in that cast because yeah. he has the prosthetic nose. He's doing, you know, the method acting. He's chewing scenery in some scenes and Pesci's character is not like underplayed. Like he's very much the loudest guy in this movie and everything he does is, oh, hey, forget about it. Like he's he's just doing <laughs> Italian guy in New York. And yeah. yet there are many, many scenes where he is underplaying and he is the most subtle performance in the movie. And it really is a thing of beauty how in those scenes where De Niro is kind of uh, reserved or even like 
mulling over his thoughts and his suspicions. And you can see Pesci starting to understand like what's he, what he's being suspected of. And then he gets angry watching those two bounce off of each other. It really is a, a dance that you're watching these two actors perform. And man, Pesci's so good in everything he does. He was so good in the Irishman just a couple years ago doing this same thing where he was underplaying a lot, but I still don't think he gets the credit he deserves. It is. I mean, like it was a breathtaking performance from Joe Pesci. Dude, the way that he cold shoulders his brother at the end of the film. Oh, man. And like, and A, people talk about how De Niro gained 60 pounds for this, which is nuts. Uh, But Pesci very clearly lost probably like 20 pounds Mm. to get down as skinny as he was at the end there. Like he, he looked very skinny. And dude, the way he plays that off, the pity that he has for Jake, who he used to like look up to as this prize fighter. Yeah. Oh, dude, it just hurts. It hurts so bad, man. I want to just jump out of performances and talk about that ending sequence for a minute. So, you know, it it culminates. The movie kind of drops you in at the beginning in the middle of LaMotta's chase for the title. And you start to slowly learn more and more about him outside the ring that he's I mean, for lack of a better term, he's just an ass. He's he's mean to everyone. And he there is no satisfying him. He is going to suspect you of things and he's going to be distrustful of everyone in his circle. And it finally comes to a head when his second wife, played by Kathy Moriarty, uh, you know, in a moment of rage, just kind of tells him what he wants to hear and says, like, yeah, I slept with your brother. I slept with everybody on the block and says it just to get him angry. And he goes over to his brother's house and he beats him to a pulp and his wife chases him there and he just sucker punches her in the face, knocks her out cold. And it's I mean. Talk about a sucker punch of a scene like he hits her in the face. And I like immediately I was like, oh, my God, like the way they film that the the visceral Dude, the way the way the way that she drops. Yeah, man. Oh, but even like man. the visceral way they film it from when he's like choking out Pesci's character. And then it's it's almost immediate. You see his last fight that he gets demolished in. And then it cuts forward a few years and he's gained so much weight and it cuts forward a few more years and he's, you know, this sleazy guy that's a club owner. It cuts forward a few more years and he's back in New York and down on his luck again. And the whole last, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes of the movie is like this very extended epilogue to the Jake LaMotta story. And I think that if you don't like this movie, then that that extended epilogue can kind of feel like a totally different film. But I think you really need all that to kind of explain everything you saw before or to, like, give closure to to justify what you watched before. I thought that was the strongest part of the whole movie, Brad, like watching his life take on the sort of like Greek tragedy was the best part of the movie. Yeah, you you see that he is gifted with incredible physical prowess. But he never tries to develop the relational IQ skills he needs to get by in life to match. Mm-hmm. And I think that the the like you said, the final 25, 30 minutes of the movie 100 percent just give you what he deserves. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I would agree with you, man. I think that's a really strong point of the movie. Yeah, I mean, like it's almost Shakespearean, right? Like it's. I just watched a few months ago, they made a new version of Macbeth with Denzel Washington as Macbeth and mm-hmm. Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth. It was directed by uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen, and it, it was really good. But there's something about when you watch a Shakespeare tragedy happen, there's always a moment of no return. And then everything starts to go downhill and you're just watching the inevitability of those choices play out. And this really does kind of take on that almost Shakespearean thing. But the thing that always blows my mind is that they make this movie very much while LaMotta is still alive. Like LaMotta was a consultant on the film. Pesci followed him or, or Pesci. De Niro followed him around to get, you know, cues as to how to play the character. And apparently it wasn't until seeing the movie that LaMotta finally realized how horrible of a person he had been. And he went and talked to his ex-wife and asked her, like, was I really that bad? And she said, no, you were worse. But it always blows my mind when they make a movie like this about somebody's life that is clearly not flattering. 
Like, I have to imagine that De Niro and Scorsese kind of slept with one eye open for a little while, like fearing that this guy was going to come after them because they paint him in the most unflattering light possible. Well, and I I read that the brother played by Pesci actually sued, uh, you know, I think it was Universal Pictures that put it out. Yeah, it was United Artists. Uh, Yeah. United Artists for like, I I don't know if it was like libel or, you know, whatever it was. Basically, he said that they were slandering his character for the way that he was portrayed by Joe Pesci. Which is so weird because he's like the hero of the movie. 100%. Yeah, he he is (laughs) the hero of the film. Other than the black and the use of black and white, oh, obviously, for sure. hero of the film, for sure. <laughs> so, talking about his brother too, De Niro had been kicking around the idea of doing this movie for years and years and years, trying to get Scorsese to make it. Scorsese kept saying no, especially because he was never a sports fan. Boxing was never compelling to him. He couldn't visualize it, and he had a friend take a crack at a screenplay. He liked parts of it, but it was real conventional, and eventually. Robert De Niro says, let's ask Paul Schrader to take a pass at this. So Schrader comes in and does his like unhinged thing where he's like adding weird sexual (laughs) subtext to everything. And in doing research, Schrader finds out, oh, LaMotta had a brother. And apparently LaMotta like just doesn't really mention his brother in his autobiography because they were on the outs with each other. And in researching the way that, you know, the Joe Pesci character in real life was also a fighter was apparently the better looking of the two. And that fueled a lot of the jealousy from LaMotta. Schrader was like, I've got my movie now. I know how we can make this into a movie. And that's kind mm-hmm. of where the whole thing took off from. Yeah, because the the relationship between he and Joey is, is the crux of the film. Mm-hmm. Like, he's the only one that's able to get underneath, you know, Jake's skin a little bit. And and I mean that in like a healthy way. Like he's the only one that's able to to get past his defenses. And yet even him by the end of the film has been beaten out of Jake LaMotta's life. Yeah, for sure. And that and that like, I don't know, man, Pesci's performance just illustrates that so perfectly. The very last scene in the movie where, you know, De Niro's back in New York and he's apparently trying to sell himself as I'm going to do monologues on stage because people will want to pay to see me do that. And he's practicing in the mirror and he's doing Brando's monologue from On the Waterfront, a movie we've done on this podcast. And he's so bad. Like, he's just he's such a bad performer, but it's such a brilliant little touch. And apparently they were going to have him recite Shakespeare at one point. And uh, Scorsese had given the script to another director friend of his. And the guy said, like, you can't have him do Shakespeare at the end. It's just it's it's above him. Like, he wouldn't understand how to even go about understanding Shakespeare. And so De Niro said, hey, let's make him do On the Waterfront, because that would be something that's kind of in his world. He would have known that movie. Mm-hmm. And that scene comes right after Pesci blows him off and says, like, yeah, yeah, I'll call you later. And you never see Pesci call him and you know he's never going to. And it cuts right to him rehearsing this speech in the mirror where He is playing Brando, who's talking to his older brother, Charlie, in that movie and saying, like, you sold me out. You I looked up to you and you betrayed me. And you can tell that as De Niro's character, as LaMotta is practicing it in the mirror, the irony is completely lost on him. He doesn't understand that this is exactly what he did to his own brother, even after he's been confronted with it. It is it's such a brilliant little touch to have this guy who you think has learned his lesson. Then recite this scene, which lays bare everything he's done to his brother. And like, it doesn't make any connection with him at all. He is utterly self-absorbed. Yeah. Like whether, whether it's in his hatred of himself or his posturing and his puffing up of himself, like he literally cannot see past the tip of his massive prosthetic (laughs) nose. All right. But listen, man, that nose in some scenes is like, all right, cool. I get it. And then another scene, yep. it's like, wow, that is one of the worst, worst prosthetics <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. Oh man. It's bad. <laughs> it is. There's an episode of SpongeBob where uh SpongeBob carves like Michelangelo's David out of marble, but, uh-huh. but Squidward is his art teacher and he thinks he needs to impress Squidward. And so he makes this really crude, like, nose that looks like Squidward's nose and he just like puts it on the on the David's <laughs> face and, and it just reminds me of like I it just seems like some days the makeup artist just kind of threw a glob of clay at De Niro's yep. face and they were like that's your nose for today go with it 
They're like, can you make it look like the mound that uh, that Richard Dreyfus makes in Close Encounters? <laughs> Just put that on his face. <laughs> All right, man. Let's talk about Kathy Moriarty for a minute. She's 18 years old when she makes this movie, Brad. And she plays Bro. she plays the span of probably what, like 15 years across this movie. Uh, yeah, she is utterly incredible. And part of what makes her so incredible is that she is such an unseasoned actress that she's really just behaving. And I, I hate to bring like my personal experience into this, but like I went to Catholic school and I feel like in every Catholic school, there is there are a number of tropes that exist. And one of them is like the husky voiced Catholic schoolgirl who uh, becomes wise about the ways of the world years before she probably should. And what, what are you talking about? Bob? <laughs> and her character just reminded me of that. So like so heavily that I was like, wow, either you experienced this in life or you really knew a bunch of people that did because <laughs> like she is just when they're like, she's 15 years old. I was like, I know she's not 15, but also she reminds me of some of those girls that at the end of my experience <laughs> at Catholic school, I was like, oh, yeah, like you're the world's going to hit you hard, sister, you know, in, in just a couple of years. And to and see her go, and it's going to be in the form of Robert De Niro's fist. <laughs> <laughs> and to see her go from that to, you know, the end of their relationship together, where she is ostensibly like in her late 20s, early 30s, she plays that character with so much range. Like, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, I thought she was stunningly good in the movie. I mean, they she's a little bit of an, a one-note character. Like, there's only a few times where she really gets, like, uh, up in arms about what Jake is doing. For the most part, she plays it really cool, calm, collected. Uh, but I, I thought her performance was really, really beautiful. She The way that she challenges Jake from the very beginning... And, like, is able to, like, keep an emotional distance from him is really just, it's a great character and a great performance. All right, let's 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 have the De Niro conversation. Because I think two things can be true at once. And this is an incredible performance. Like, it is layered. It is nuanced. It gets more complex as the movie goes on, which is what you want it to do as this character starts to understand things about himself and grapple with them. And it is also one of the like showiest performances of all time. And, yes. and, and again, that doesn't always mean that he's out here chewing scenery and giving like a big, broad performance. It's very subtle at times, but this is kind of the pinnacle of people falling all over themselves to reward method acting. D you know, it starts with Brando ushering it into Hollywood and Montgomery Clift and some of those guys. And it kind of regains popularity with this new wave of actors in the 70s with your Dustin Hoffman's and your Pacino's and your De Niro's. And it gets to this point where De Niro gets an in incredible shape to be a real fighter and then takes a couple months off, gains 60 pounds to play like this, you know, fat 40 something now. And he wins the Oscar like it's it's held up as a pinnacle of acting in cinema people go into acting because of this performance. Like it's just, it has that sort of legend behind it, but I think it also is one that you can really point to as everything that's really good and everything that's really bad about method acting. Yeah, Bob. And it's interesting because when you look at the, the history of method acting, it does not feel like it has been in a good place since like, I guess I don't know much about any method actors in like the 90s and early 2000s, but it feels like over the last 10 years, the acting world has like pretty unanimously like come out and been like, no, like the only time you're a method actor is when you're playing like an a-hole in a movie. Like nobody yeah. method acts Mr. Rogers. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and so it's like. You know, I, I mean, who knows? Maybe Tom Hanks does. His whole life has just been method acting as Mr. Rogers. Right. <laughs> but like you only ever method act when you're playing like a wounded, hateful person. Right. And so at a certain point, I think the acting community and you can correct me if I'm wrong because you know a lot more than I do. It feels like they're pretty much like now, nah, like method acting needs to go the way of the dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, like the the most popular one now, the most famous one now is Daniel Day-Lewis, who does it in There Will Be Blood and wins an Oscar and then does it again as Lincoln and wins an Oscar. But, you know, even a couple weeks ago, I was reading something about how so many actors misinterpret how to be a method actor when it comes to being on set. 
Like, yes, you get into the character and yes, Daniel Day-Lewis never breaks character. But like in between takes as Daniel Plainview, like he wasn't berating the cast and crew. And <laughs> like he just kind of asks you about your day in a weird voice and, you know, yeah. kills time as Daniel Plainview. And so you're, I, I feel like he, he'd just be walking around with a bowling pin <laughs> spattered with like stage blood and like staggering, just... <laughs> muttering about milkshakes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I think when I'd say that it embodies the worst of method acting, too, it gets back to this movie's script. And kind of famously, a lot of people have always said this movie didn't really have a script because it had some some first drafts and then it had Schrader's pass at a script, which featured some very scandalous things that didn't make it into the movie. Uh, De Niro and Scorsese go off for a week to kind of pound out the final version of this script together. And Scorsese says like, I've got the script handwritten on yellow legal pads still to this day. But for the most part, they came up with the movie, but so much of this movie is improvised and you can tell that it's improvised. And I think that's still my biggest problem with this movie is that especially in the first 45 ish minutes of the movie, there's really no rhythm and there's really no flow to what's happening. And as different characters get introduced, you can't really tell who's going to be important to the story and who's not. And it really just felt like it felt kind of masturbatory. It felt like Scorsese and De Niro kind of showing off what they could do with the camera and with their acting chops, respectively. And so many scenes go on for so long and so many people just keep saying like, hey, put the steak here, put it here. What are you going to do with my steak? It goes on forever. And I think that like that's my big problem with roles like this is it calls so much attention to itself that. You respect it and it's still really good, but it's almost more of a begrudging respect than anything. Yeah, I think that Schoonmaker receives the Oscar for her editing uh, of the fight scenes in this movie. And I think deservedly so. They, they are very jarring and almost like psychedelic scenes uh, that you don't normally see in boxing movies. However... She did not win an Oscar for the editing of the rest of the film. <laughs> and the I think I read somewhere that the boxing scenes took up 10 minutes of the it's like an hour and 50 minute movie. So clearly I I'm not a huge fan of the editing in this movie outside of the boxing scenes because of what you just said. It feels like Scorsese was just kind of like, yeah, let's just point the camera at him and see what happens. And I, I think that what you were talking about, the script is so important because everything I read about this film is that De Niro literally just immersed himself in the role the same way he did for Taxi Driver, right? Like he spent a month as a taxi driver in New York. In this movie, he trained as a prize fighter and he actually entered three boxing matches in New York City and apparently he won two of them. Mm -hmm. So like he he threw himself into the role so deeply that it felt like each scene just kind of had a general blocking notes of like, hey, this is kind of the goal of the scene. This is where you should be. Just go be Jake LaMotta. And that's what he did. He was just Jake LaMotta in every scene. But the the movie just felt like it was just meandering around and just took forever to get anywhere. Yeah. And I just really struggled with that, man. So I definitely have different thoughts on the movie than you do. I think it really picks up in the second half of the film, but we can hash that out when we come back from break because it's time for us to try Jack Daniels bonded. What do you say, Brad? I think uh, when we get back from the break, we're going to talk like we're Italian the entire time. eh? <laughs> That's offensive and we're not going to mm. do it. <laughs> Let's get to it, Bob. All right, today we are checking out Jack Daniels Bonded. This is a new release from Jack Daniels, and it came out at the same time as last week's product, the Triple Mash, which is to say it's just been released in the last couple months. And shockingly, this is a completely new product for Jack Daniels. Like, they have never done this before. And it really blows my mind that a corporation as big as Jack Daniels, producing some of the most popular whiskey of all time, has never thought, like, let's do a bottled and bond version of this. And man, uh, if, if what you're doing is working. I guess, man. 
It's it's the, the Jack Daniels is the Woody Hayes of the whiskey world. <laughs> so there, I don't have a lot of like background info on this. This is the first time they've done a bottled and bond. As we know, it is Tennessee whiskey. It's not bourbon because of the process that Tennessee whiskey goes through after it comes off the still before it goes into the barrel. They let it drip through charcoal filters because they say that that really mellows and smooths it out. Uh, it is the same mash bill as regular Jack Daniels, which is uh, 80% corn. I believe it's 12% uh, barley and then 8% rye. So it's a real low rye whiskey aged for at least four years. And that's pretty much all you need to know, man. It's a four year, 100 proof Jack Daniels. Bob, I'm really pumped that you mentioned the barley there because I did not know the mash bill when I took my notes on this. Hmm, there you uh, go. But when I got into my nosing notes, what the the main thing I said, I was like, there's like a, a lot of really nice barley notes on this. Mm-hmm. And I wrote barley-esque because I wasn't sure if there was barley in it and I didn't want to sound dumb uh, if there wasn't. <laughs> but I'm going to change it. There's barley on the nose. Hey, there you go. But yeah, there, there's barley, there's apple, there's caramel, and there's oak. Mm. And it's it's a really nice, pleasant nose. It definitely is. It does remind me a little bit of a product we had just a few weeks ago called Law's uh, Bonded Malt, which was a 100% malt whiskey. Yep. There's something about when you use malt in bourbon or you know a bourbon type whiskey like this that it contributes like wheat. Uh, wheat whiskeys and weeded bourbons always remind me of cola. Malty bourbons and and you know high corn whiskeys always remind me of like double bubble bubble gum. It has this mm. real kind of dusty, almost that like bubble gum medicine that you had when you were a kid, and it's really really nice. I just don't know why it always takes on that character for me, but I'm getting that in spades here, man. I really like this a lot. Super inviting, really pleasant. There's not a lot of ethanol on the nose. And I'm I'm digging that. It seems like it's going to be a really smooth, easy drinking experience. I'm going to give it an eight out of 10 on the nose. I think I'll give it a seven and a half. Uh, but w- when I get into the taste here, once again, I get a lot of apple, almost like a like a, a sweeter green apple on the tip of my tongue. And then like mid to back palate, there's all sorts of like, like, I don't know, like a stone fruit, maybe like a plum note going on Hmm. that is is really dark and refreshing and i i really like it a lot um i'm actually gonna jump up and give it an eight out of ten on the taste i think i'm gonna come down just a little bit on taste and it's because i don't think that there's a lot of complexity going on here it has some very standard kind of mid-shelf bourbon notes like it reminds me a lot of an elijah craig or you know insert thirty dollar bourbon here you're right. Yeah. You're right in that it has a lot of apple notes on the front. I do get quite a bit of that bubblegum note as well. And there's a ton of black pepper on this for me. It's real spicy and I like it, but it's just kind of like, yeah, this tastes like what I would expect a very good $30 whiskey to taste like. And there is nothing wrong with that. But compared even to last week's triple mash, this just doesn't have a lot going on on the palate. So I'm going to give it a seven and a half out of 10. Yeah, and then we get into the finish. There's some really nice fruit notes. I, I think it's that plum that kind of lingers for a while um, with a little bit of oak and a little bit of like a baking spice for me. I, I think I'm getting into that peppery territory, mm-hmm. uh, but it it lacks a little bit of a punch. So I, I'm going to come down a little bit and give it a 7 out of 10 on the finish. This is really nice. It's mouthwatering. There's not a lot of ethanol burn on this for being 100 proof that the alcohol hits you like right before you go to swallow. And then after you swallow, you get almost a kind of cola aftertaste for me. I'm not getting any of the fruit you're talking about. And I was really trying to go through like like a catalog of fruits. I'm like, is it melon? No. Is it pineapple? No. Is, you know, is it that plum stone fruit that you're talking about? I'm not really getting any of that. It's just kind of a standard uh, cola taste on the finish. Very pleasant, but just not uh, not very complex. So I'll give it a 7 out of 10 on the finish. Yeah, and our balance score, I, I think it's going to sit at a 7 for me. That Like, this is not a very complex whiskey, um, but it has some nice notes that are consistent throughout. Uh, it's a decently balanced whiskey. I'll give it a 7. I'm, a, I'm not even going to add anything to what you said. I'll give it a 7.5. I really like this. And I think at the price point, which we'll talk about in a moment, it's a very good whiskey, but it's kind of just like, hey, 
I can pull this down off the shelf and be satisfied with it at any time, and I will not be any more than satisfied with it. But I think there's a place for that. So I'm going to give it a seven and a half on balance. And now we're getting into value. So this, and remember, we're losing 50 milliliters here. Uh, a 700 milliliter pour of this will be $33 in the wonderful state of Ohio. Yep. Uh, I, I don't know, Bob. I, like, this is a really interesting pour that I enjoy, but it's not like crazy impressionable. Uh, I, I think it's a decent value at $33, though. I, I don't know. Where are you at? Well, I think, and I don't know if it's Jack Daniels or if it's Ohio that's trying to kind of manufacture scarcity for this, but the MSRP is $29.99. So they're marking it up, you know, 10% more than they should, basically, in Ohio. And if you do the math, at a $30 price point, if you made this into a 750 milliliter bottle, it would be 32 and some change. So... Like, you know, if if we're going on the manufacturer's price, I really don't think this is a bad value at all. And even with the state of Ohio at 33, I don't think it's a bad value. I'm assuming that outside of Ohio, more people can get it at the price that it's supposed to be sold. So I'm going to go into this with the $30 price tag in mind. I'm going to give it a seven and a half out of 10. I think this is worth 30 bucks. It's a really good whiskey. Like I said, it's it's nothing more than a whiskey that will satisfy you, but it will satisfy you all the time. And like sometimes it's really nice to know that you've got a seven out of 10 whiskey on the shelf for whenever you want it. And that's yeah. kind of what this I, is. Yeah, I'm with you. I'll, I'll think about it at the $33 mark and give it a six and a half, um, which brings me to a 36 out of 50, Bob. It's a whiskey that I really like. I'm at a 37 and a half out of 50, which brings us to a 73.5 out of 100 or a 36.75 out of 50. And that means we are over the 35 out of 50 mark where we typically start saying, yes, I recommend this. Brad, I think that I would recommend buying the bottle before I would recommend getting a pour of this at the bar. Yeah, I feel like you're going to pay anywhere from like five to eight dollars at the bar for it. At which point, like, if you're able to get your hands on a bottle, just grab a bottle. It's a good share with some friends. Uh, yeah, I think, man, I've always liked Jack Daniels. They definitely had a little bit of a resurgence for me when we tried it on the podcast. But, man, I just am super impressed with these two new offerings that they're giving us, Bob. I would definitely say that I prefer the triple mash to the bonded. Uh, the triple mash is one that's like, it's not just satisfying me, but it is... I recommend there's, this to people. There's some complexity there. For yeah. sure. For sure. But this one's good too. Like if you can't find the triple mash, this one's really good. I would just think about it the way that you think about regular Elijah Craig or, you know, whatever your other $30 whiskey is that you'd like to plug in there. It's not going to knock your socks off, but it can be your old reliable if you want it to. Well, Bob, I think that about does it for Jack Daniels Bonded. How about we get back into finishing our conversation about Raging Bull? Let's get to it, Brad. All right, everybody. That was Jack Daniels Bonded, a whiskey that Bob and I are really happy with. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed that, man. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. You can't ask yeah, for much more, you know? At the at the thirty buck price range, like the, like that's what you're looking for, mm -hmm. man. I'm I'm not looking for a fifty out of fifty whiskey there. Absolutely not. But you know where I am looking for a fifty out of fifty score, Bob. <laughs> Is it two facts two, and a falsehood? Two facts and a falsehood. Brad, you have to remind me. I did I get the taxi driver one correct or incorrect? You got it incorrect. You guessed that Peter Boyle had tried out for. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The other movie. All right. So I am at two and three on the season. I'm looking to get back to 500. I was on a little bit of a streak there. I started out 0 and 2. I got hot and got two in a row, and then I missed last week. So let's see if I can pull myself back to dead even in our standings. Hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. All right. Fact number one, Robert De Niro accidentally broke Joe Pesci's rib in the sparring scene. Uh, the shot appears in the film when De Niro hits Pesci in the side and Pesci kind of groans, but then there's a quick cut to another angle and you kind of lose the scene. Fact number two, uh, to achieve the feeling of brotherhood between De Niro and Pesci, they actually lived and trained with one another for about a month and a half before the filming began. 
And ever since then, the two have been very close friends. Fact number three, in the scene where Pesci is shutting, uh, his name's Frank Vincent. Uh, I had written down Salvi because that's just a great name. Uh, <laughs> when he's shutting Frank Vincent's head in the cab door, he actually caught his arm at a really awkward angle and pulled his shoulder out of the socket and tore a ligament. Oh my gosh. And so in the next scene where he and uh, Tommy and Joe Pesci are patching things up, the sling that he was reeling was not a prop. The, that was his actual wow. sling. So I know that number one is a fact. Like, I remember hearing about Pesci's ribs getting broken in that scene. So it's really between two and three. And those both sound like very plausible things. I know De Niro trained for the movie. And like you said, he entered a couple fights. So it's possible that Pesci lived with him. And I know that they're very close. Fact number three sounds like it could have happened as well. You know, I actually think that I'll, I'll go ahead and say that fact three is a fact. I'm going to say fact two is the falsehood. Bob, fact number two is a true statement. Damn it. Oh, <laughs> man, you're getting too good at this, Brad. I, I'm getting phenomenal at this, Bob. <laughs> I'm entering like the week six of the Cleveland Browns every year territory. I'm at two and four on the season now, man. <laughs> a lot of hope to start the season. Well, yep. that's not true. The Browns never win the opening game. <laughs> no. <laughs> man. All right, Man, you got I'm me again, where, dude. I'm loving where this is going. <laughs> I will say, Bob, if we get to the end of the season and you're two and thirty, I will. I don't know if I'll be enjoying it anymore. Well, what's that supposed to mean? Like, I'm trying my best I, here, man. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I like being as good at this as I am. <laughs> Never mind. I'll love it. <laughs> All right, man. Let's get back into talking about this movie. We left off. You know, hinting at our thoughts on De Niro, do you have any other closing thoughts on De Niro or do you want to hop into other territory now? I just I think that De Niro's performance is impressive, but not great. Hmm. Like I, it, yeah. it is impressive what he did, the way he embodied the life of this terrible human being. I don't know if I would call it great, though. Hmm. Like it, it felt it it just didn't strike me as very difficult for him to do. Hmm. And, and like I'm not saying that like De Niro is a bad person, but the the only scene where that felt like there was raw emotion and like true stakes for him was when he was in that isolation chamber. Mm -hmm. That was the only time in the movie that I like connected with him as a character. Yeah. And like I I understand that there's movies where like the the main character is supposed to be a schlub, but I don't know, man. Like, I, I get that that Scorsese is like throwing sports tropes on their heads here, but like the beauty of a boxing movie, and and I, maybe I'm getting into like big picture stuff here, but like the beauty of a boxing movie is that you know, mo like boxing movies are supposed to be about like. The bulldog of Bergen, like fighting in the ring and fighting in his real life, like for something. Mm -hmm. And this movie is not that at all. No, it's and the I, opposite. It's, it's it's the exact opposite. It's a man just, having a, an outlet for his violence and still not utilizing it and taking that violence home with him. Yes. And that like that for me, it just didn't click for me at any point. I saw what he was doing and I walked away unimpressed. I mean, I don't know if I agree with that because I think that Scorsese is telling a story that is probably more true to life than most of those movies that we've watched. You know what I mean? Like there's probably more boxers that go home and have this sort of mentality. Honestly, you know what it reminded me of? And this is probably the hottest take I'll deliver in this whole Ooh. thing. It reminded me it. of when I watched The Last Dance and I watched Michael Jordan, you know, who just seems like such a sad, lonely man at this point in his life. Mm -hmm. And the way that he just pushes everybody away and it seems like he has no real good relationships and he was so competitive on the court and in his real life that just no one really wants to be involved with him anymore. And everyone gives him his flowers and, and calls him the goat. But it's kind of like, what good is it being the goat if uh, if no one likes you? Like, what have you really accomplished? What will people remember you for other than just those things? And with LaMotta, 
it's even more than that. And Brad, you you brought up three points just now that I think we should kind of hit in order. You brought up, you know, De Niro's performance. You brought up Scorsese, and then you brought up uh, the the role of the boxing movie. And so, just to kind of put a bow on De Niro's performance here, I'm with you in that it's a really good performance, and I think the last thirty minutes are what win him the Oscar because he's really convincing playing someone who's much older than he is in real life at that time. And that scene where he's trying to track down Pesci in the parking garage and he has this limp to his gait because he's so heavy and beat up in life. Like, it's very, very convincing. I think that that whole mm-hmm. sequence is really well done. But again, that first 50 minutes when it just seems like they're doing like uh, improv activities at the actor's studio and, and Scorsese's just kind of filming it, um, it, it wasn't compelling to me. And that kind of takes me into the Scorsese of it all. This is the first movie in Scorsese's catalog that really feels like it has the rhythm and the editing and the camera work of what we've come to know Scorsese for. And even comparing it to Taxi Driver, like it's it's shot by the same guy, uh, Michael Chapman, but it's edited so differently. And the camera is so much more frenetic here. And you get, you know, they're breaking the 180 degree rule all the time. It carries that editing style forward into all of his movies from here. And it just really strikes me as a movie that is a director's wet dream. Like directors love this movie because it hits everything you want to hit as a director. And it's kind of the same critique we had when we talked about Apocalypse Now, that it's just like it's this kind of self-masturbatory thing that directors had total control at the end of the 70s with what they produced. And at parts, it feels like Scorsese is doing kind of like a documentary style filmmaking or like a cinema verite thing. At other parts, it's so highly stylized, like what happens in the ring with the blood dripping off the rope and the the smoke coming out of nowhere and that final fight with Sugar Ray, where it seems like kind of cosmic punishment that <laughs> that Lamada is calling down upon himself. Like it's so highly stylized that does it all work? I don't know that it all works, but damn it, he's going to try. And it's like a very big, bold artist's statement. But when you're just looking at it, not from a cinema studies point of view, not from like a guy who wants to write a thesis about the movie and just a person who walks into the movie theater looking for an entertaining film. I don't know if every decision Scorsese makes translates to that kind of a reading. Yeah, the the amount of artiste things that he is doing is just overwhelming at a certain point. And when you have an actor that is chewing up scenery the way De Niro is, it it just comes across as too much. Mm. And I I think that for the average viewer, this just isn't a movie that many people are going to enjoy. And and I think that there are artistic films out there that are serious and take themselves seriously and don't aim to entertain and please that the average person can enjoy, but this one just didn't strike me that way. Yeah. Well, this was like an intensely personal movie for for Scorsese at the time. I almost said Spielberg for Scorsese at the time because he was like coked out of his mind. He almost died. I mean, it's a very famous story that he literally almost dies. De Niro convinces him to take this movie on to try to get him kind of out of his depressive state. And this is the first movie that Scorsese kind of said, F it. Like my last movie was a flop. I'm going to put a lot more of my personality into this. I want it to be about people that I know that I grew up with in New York. And it really does kind of have that feel of, you know, Italian life in New York City. And at the same time, though, I want to compare this movie to Goodfellas, which is a movie that has never really worked for you, Brad. But this film feels at multiple points like Scorsese was trying to make the great American film. And Goodfellas never has that vibe to me. Like Goodfellas is a big sprawling movie and it does such a good job in the first half of like showing how the life can seduce you before it all falls apart. But that movie feels so much more like a Scorsese who has 10 more years of maturity as a person and doesn't have to try to wow you with his artistry at every turn that I ultimately think Goodfellas is a more successful movie at doing what he's trying to do here. I think that one of the scenes that like pissed me off the most, not even a scene, but the shot, uh, actually, no, the whole scene did piss me off. Uh, when De Niro takes Vicky, uh, ca- you know, Kathy Moriarty's character out on a date mm. 
Like, A, I don't know what kind of world Scorsese grew up in, but if he's portraying Italians as he knew it, then I like I'm not saying this about real Italians. I'm saying it about Scorsese's version of Italians. They're the most shallow human beings <laughs> I have ever seen written into a movie. Like, he literally just goes up to this 15-year-old girl is like stares at her. It's like, hey, like, like it might as well be delivered by Sylvester Stallone. Like, hey, you led that car? Yeah, I'll, I'll take you for a ride in the car. You, you want to go now? Like, it is the most boring, stupid dialogue I have ever heard in my life. The funny thing is, I remember, I, I remember watching that scene. And when you watch something on Amazon Prime, which is where this is streaming right now, uh, it has that thing called X-ray where you can like tap the screen and it tells you facts as they happen. And mm-hmm. it was like. Fun fact, this scene was totally improvised by Moriarty and De Niro. And I was like, you don't say, really? This four minute scene where they like have 30 second pauses between every line and you can tell that they're trying to figure out what to say next. This was improvised. Gosh, it was horrifically bad. And then on top of all that, they're out mini golfing and- De Niro, or De Niro, like, you know, does the classic guy thing is like, hey, here, let me let me show you how to put the ball and, you know, puts his arms around her and she puts it and the ball like disappears underneath the windmill mm-hmm. and she goes to look for the ball and the camera like, like zooms in from behind her as she looks back at him. Yeah. And it that shot called so much attention to itself. It felt like a film student trying to like make uh, a statement about the male gaze. Yeah, I don't know. I yeah. It I was guess. oh, it drove me nuts. <laughs> I like watched it three times and I was like, Scorsese, come on, bro. Like you're better than uh, this. Funny. Yeah, I didn't have that, oh, that reaction. Man. But so I mean finally, I guess I'll say this. To your point about the boxing movie tropes, I like that this movie portrays I, I don't want to say in a cynical way, but in a more realistic way the other side of the world of boxing. And it's not that this is representative of boxers or anything like that, but using boxing as a metaphor for people like LaMada, it really is brilliant. And I love that final fight where he's, you know, he thinks that he's won by telling Sugar Ray, I never went down. I never went down. He's sitting there all bloody and he can't see out of either eye. And they cut to the reaction shot of Pesci watching it on TV. And he's like, oh, my God, like you're embarrassing yourself. And he just can't see it like he truly is blind to how destructive he's being to himself in the name of some like false sense of pride or insecurity. And. I think ultimately that's why I still really like this movie, Brad. The first 50 minutes, I was ready to come out here swinging and say, like, this is a six and a half out of 10. But the last half of the movie makes so much sense and and everything follows upon the decisions that are being made in such a Shakespearean way that I still think I'm going to come out on this movie to a nine out of 10. I think Goodfellas is better. I think Taxi Driver is better. But I can see why this movie is so widely regarded. I I see where they're coming from. I, like, I, I get it. It's a well-made movie in certain aspects, and it is a very earnest movie. Like, you can tell that Scorsese and De Niro, and, and I would say Pesci as well, like, really poured their heart and soul into this film. That being said, I was with you, man. First, like, hour, hour and ten minutes into the movie, I was like, this is like a six out of ten. Uh, the last... The last half of the movie, I really liked. I I think that they redeemed themselves in a lot of ways. I think that that scene where he's in the isolation chamber is genuinely one of the most brutal psychological scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Mm. Uh, Like the the honesty that he has with himself to just say, I I hate you. And like he just has so much self-loathing that has destroyed his entire life. Uh, it's this vicious cycle and, and you see it portrayed. So I, as with all Scorsese films, I get to the end of a Scorsese movie and I don't think anybody in film can do this better. Scorsese has a point Mm -hmm. like to every single movie he makes, he is making a very clear and direct point and he's not going to let the audience off the hook. And I I think that's what I love about Scorsese as a director. 
but that being said, the first half of this movie was wildly rough for me. Uh, I will come out to a 7 out of 10 wow. on Raging Bull. <laughs> All right. All right. There's the hot take we were looking for. So, Film and Whiskey Nation, we're coming out to an average of an 8 out of 10, but we'd like to know what you think. Have you seen Raging Bull? Do you love Raging Bull? Do you hate Raging Bull? Where do you fall on the spectrum of appreciation? You can reach out to us and let us know on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Or jump onto our Discord. We're on there every day talking to you guys, uh, our fans, the people that we just really enjoy discussing movies, whiskey, and just about everything else under the sun with. So if you'd like to join that community, you can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. Next week, we'll be back to finish out our Scorsese miniseries with his 2016 film, Silence. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.